Hey everyone, it's Daniel Rosen. And Armin Bali. Before we get started, we want to tell you about something really cool that our station did this year. CJRU 1280 AM offered weekly workshops for Syrian refugees, providing them mentorship and a place to learn how to tell their own story through radio documentary while working on their English. Which is awesome, and why we want to support their upcoming fund drive. They're looking to raise $3,300 to fund another round of our successful refugee radio workshops. With your help, we'll continue to make this free program available and accessible. All you need to do to support is visit store.cjru.ca. Use our offer code B2P to be entered into a raffle to win a copy of Monster Hunter World on your favorite platform. Plus, we'll have some other surprises we'll get to later in the show. But for now, remember, all proceeds go to fund Refugee Radio. Show your support this fall by pledging at store.cjru.ca. Without their help and their studios, we wouldn't be talking to you right now. So let's get to the good part. Hello and welcome to the Caveman Games. Let's go down to the mate toss. It's hard not to cringe when you look at old video game ads. Did you see the latest Nintendo newsletter? Whoa, nice graphics. I'd like to get my hands on the that. The line game. delivery is hokey, the acting is bad, and it's hard to imagine anyone today picking up a newsletter. But starting in the late 70s and early 80s, something changed about who was in these ads. Listen to this one for the Atari 2600 game, Pitfall. Just last night, I was lost in the jungle with Pitfall Harry, surrounded by giant scorpions and man-eating crocodiles. Well, Harry and I just grabbed the van, swung through the trees, and over the tar pits and found the jungle treasure. It was really neat. It's not a bad idea for a commercial, honestly. The whole family tells their story about playing the game. Or almost the whole family. Since I met Pitfall Harry, no other man will do. So, mom plays games, dad plays games, son plays games. But the daughter? She's fallen in love with Pitfall Harry? Or something more gross than that? This is an example of a game picking an audience. And this was long before the industry was a huge juggernaut, before it began carefully dissecting demographics by age, race, and gender. No corporate executive publicly said in 1982 that girls don't play video games. And yet, they were still treated as abnormal. The video games industry has never been the friendliest place for women. Studies show that nearly half of women in the United States have played video games, but few would call themselves gamers compared to men. So while everyone is just as likely to enjoy playing video games, there aren't too many women who culturally identify with it. And I think it's important we identify why that's the case. It's our history of gatekeeping. It's a toxic, hyper-masculine culture reflected at all levels of the industry. And it's had like these to state what the industry really thinks. Two wheels versus four wheels. A blonde versus brunette. How many times did you do it yesterday? Are you afraid you're doing it too often? In your bedroom under the blankets. Back in July, ArenaNet, the developers of popular online game Guild Wars 2, fired Jessica Price. Price was one of their narrative designers, and earlier she posted a Twitter thread about writing for games, which a YouTuber disagreed with. Price, in response, tweeted the following comment. Today in being a female game developer, allow me, a person who does not work with you, explain to you how to do your job. This tweet, and her follow-ups, led the Guild War community to revolt. Her comments might seem a little angry, but when Price was online, she was constantly condescended to. And she says she was tired of being treated as if she didn't know how to do her own job. 
The next day, ArenaNet fired Price, along with another employee who defended her on Twitter. A similar story has been developing out of Riot Games in recent weeks. A Kotaku article by Cecilia de Anastasio revealed the League of Legends developers' toxic workplace culture. Riot, in response, created a workshop for women and non-binary people on how to get into the games industry. And again, the community revolted. The League of Legends subreddit felt that Riot's decision not to let men into the panel was sexist, and when two male employees spoke up in favor of the decision, they were fired. Allegedly, they violated the company's social media policy. Those Riot employees were fired for speaking out against a very toxic culture Riot promised to fix. Fired for the same reason that Jessica Price was, being fed up with a broken system crafted by men for a certain kind of man. And we're fed up too. So today on Built to Play, we're partnering with our friends at Radio Free Krypton to talk about toxicity. Why are some of the biggest industries in geekdom filled with hate and vitriol? In our part, you'll hear from some of the people who could show us exactly how broken gaming is and what it might take to fix it. We often talk about sexism and racism in generalities. People get harassed in the gaming community, which is true, but pretty vague, right? So to start, we're going to look at one very particular slice of gaming, Dota 2. And to help us, we're going to hear from... So I'm Lane Uhoff. I go by Superphrenic, and I'm one of the managers of Desolades. So Desolades is a group for women who play Dota 2 because when you play video games as a woman and you talk on microphone as a woman, it can be a very unwelcoming place and it can actually be a very vicious place. Now, Dota 2 is a hard game to play and even harder one to learn. So while we're not going to get all the nuance here, this is what you need to know. Dota 2 is a free and highly competitive online game where two teams of five heroes try to destroy the other's base. Basically, there's a big building called an Ancient at the center of each team's base, and the heroes have to fight each other and the terrain to destroy it. So it's also really popular. Roughly half a million people are playing this game at any one time. And there's also that competitive side, which, aside from multi-million dollar prize pools, has a legion of dedicated fans watching. A combined 845,000 fans watched the International, which is the tournament that gathers some of the best Dota teams in the world. It's Jackson Anna. Whoa! again. These impetuses. But among both competitors and casual fans, women seem to be excluded. Here's Elaine Yuhas, better known as Superphrenic, on why. It's hard for anyone to become a pro player, and especially women in Dota 2, because Dota's been around for such a long time. Obviously, uh, it's not the first incarnation of Dota, because it's called Dota 2. Uh, you know, it came from, from other, other games and other iterations. And everyone who's playing at a professional level now has been playing for years and years and years. So it's not something where you can just walk into it, pick it up, and then, you know, a year later, you're playing in tournaments or something, unless you're ridiculous, because it just, it just doesn't happen. There's too much to learn. The game itself is so complex. So there are more than 100 heroes. Each hero has an average of four abilities, and then there are another few dozen items. And you need to know all the combinations and how they interact with each other. So it's not a game for casual players, because you'll just get blindsided by something that you don't understand. Dota is a game that's played online. You have to play with other people. It's a 5v5 game, so you have yourself and then four teammates. And the way you communicate with them is either through text and voice, 
or voice. So you can type out what you want to say to them and no one will know what you sound like or what your gender is, but it's going to take so long to type it um, that you're going to be losing time. You're not going to be as efficient as other people because, you know, seconds matter. You can talk, but then people will know if you sound girly and they'll start harassing you. Um, Same for if you have a noticeable accent, people will start commenting on that. It's very, very rare in my experience. Um, If I start talking, people just won't let it slide. They'll have to say something about it. Yeah, we're still getting a date after this. Faster. Wait, what'd you say? I'm trolling. Oh, I didn't hear you though. So when I talk in a game and I sound girly, obviously, I get comments about what I must be like. And, you know, you get crude sexual comments. I've gotten weird comments that also involve racism, too. My favorite comment that I ever gotten was, you know, you're such a feminist. You're so upset. Why don't you go pay some taxes about it? I was just like, what? Why is it an insult to be like, you know what? Go pay your taxes, you degenerate human. But besides that, there's something called throwing, which basically just means playing badly or doing intentionally harmful things in the game to keep your team from winning. So throwing is a much bigger issue than I feel. It's a much bigger issue than just the comments because, you know, a few a few comments I can I can ignore. I can meet them. But if someone decides to completely abandon what they're supposed to be doing in their game just to have their character literally follow mine around the entire map and try to stand on top of me, there's no way I can win with that. And there's nothing that I can do about it. You can't make the person play the game. Um, and, you know, people will throw for any reason. People will throw because you picked a, you picked a bad hero or because they don't like the the lane setup or because you accidentally put a ward in your own base or something. So people will throw for any reason, but if you throw for a bullshit reason, like you don't like to hear someone picked mid, you'll probably throw for a bullshit reason. Like the person on the other side of the screen sounds kind of girly. Is there any way that like you can police that within the game? So if someone's behaving badly, you can report them, but the reports don't necessarily do anything. You can get stuck in the same game with them the next game, Uh, where they could be on your team, they could be the enemy. And once you're in a Dota game, you're locked into that game until you abandon and get penalized for it, someone else abandons and gets penalized for it, or the game ends. There are some games like an Overwatch game where if you're not playing competitive, you can just leave and nothing bad will happen to you unless you do it 20 times in a row. Dota's not like that. Even if you're not playing ranked or competitive, you get penalized if you leave the game. And that's another reason why it's so hard for people to get into the game or to love the game, because you need to dedicate so much time to it up front. And it's not necessarily an issue that only women face. It's just an issue that everybody faces. Like Dota demands a lot of you before you'll be able to pull off anything somewhat good in the game. So people will make comments based on how you sound or your steam name or your picture and they'll throw the game and afterwards they might try to add you as a friend they might send you spam invites to different groups talking about how much you suck if you are interested in building yourself up as a personality in esports then you'll probably use the same name in every place which is great for branding it's not great because that means that anyone who wants to bother you can just find you easily on Twitter or on Twitch. So 
it's not super uncommon that you'll find someone in the game, things will go absolutely horribly with them because they are a poorly adjusted person, and then they'll come find you on Twitch if you're streaming and just be in your chat and start bothering you. And it's another thing that you have to take care of. There are just all these things that you have to take care of before you can finally just fucking apply. You know, I've had um, a stalker that was through Dota, like our main connection was Dota, and it's really scary and it's really fucked up and there's no one who can protect you from it because the laws in real life haven't caught up to all the forms of awful things people have invented online. The biggest thing that bothered me was that they didn't have to face any consequences in their real life. You know, no one at their school, no one at their job knew what they were doing in their free time. Uh, you know, their family didn't know, their friends didn't know. So what I would have wanted was some kind of punishment that made it public, that just showed people this is what they are doing when they think you're not looking. So I don't want to give the impression to people that uh, there are no good female players or that these are like impenetrable barriers. But when, when, when we were looking into this, one thing that I thought was fascinating is that... Um, uh, so, for instance, like Muriel uh, Hausman, I believe is how you pronounce her name, Kips, um, highly mm-hmm. successful Dota 2 coach. Um, and we're also talking like um, she's had multiple teams that she's coached make it to the international, the big tournament at the end of the season. Um, Evany Chang is the general manager of OG, and they just won the international. Um, these are low visibility but extremely high profile roles, and they've been incredibly successful. Obviously, these, like, these are not p- bad positions to be in, but do women get forced into these kind of uh, into these behind the scene roles because of the nature of the community? I wouldn't say that they're necessarily forced into these roles, but when you love the game so much and you want to be a part of the scene so much, you're not going to let something stop you from participating in it. So if you really want to be there and you can't be there as a player, but maybe you can find your way in as a coach or maybe a team manager. So if anything, I just, think it shows how dedicated they are to find their own spot in it, even if they can't go or didn't go through the path of pro player. Because every team that's there needs so much support. And obviously, the spotlights are on the teams and the spotlights are on the players. But there's so much behind that, kind of like in a movie where the actors and the actresses get all the attention. But There's someone there who's installing the lighting and someone who's messing with the microphone. And all these people are equally crucial to having the thing succeed. There is a comic strip called XKCD. And in one of the comic strips, there is someone drawing on a blackboard and they're writing out a math equation and it's wrong. And the person who's sitting at the desk watching them says, wow, you suck at math. And then in the next panel, it's someone with long hair, so a girl standing at the chalkboard, writing out the same wrong math equation, and the person in the desk says, wow, girls suck at math. So if you're a girl and you're not good at the game, you don't just feel the burden of being an individually bad player, but you feel the burden of carrying on this stereotype that girls are bad players and you don't really belong there. So one of our biggest successes in Desolades has been making a place for players of all skill levels and just saying that you do belong here. As long as you as long as you like Dota, you belong here. You don't even necessarily have to play Dota. You know, if your internet connection is terrible, but you can be watching it, you can be following the teams, you can still be loving it. So 
one of our biggest successes is just making sure that anyone who wants to love it can love it. And no one's going to gatekeep them out of it because they don't meet some arbitrary standard that coincidentally always happens to match up with the gatekeeper exactly. I think we've done a lot of good work in, in the talk show and in the podcast and in our content highlighting what women do for the scene. But something we've talked about internally is just making it okay for women to be bad at games too. Because we talk a lot about women becoming pro players and what's stopping them from becoming pro players. And that's a very valid conversation. But the other side of that is we also need to make sure that we're allowed just to be players too. It means that if you have a question about a hero, and even if it's a super obvious, super basic question, no one's going to tell you that. They're going to tell you the answer and they're going to help you. We make it so it's okay just to be to be silly or to learn a new hero or to play a position that you haven't played rather than having the focus of every single game be winning at all costs, even if that means being horrible to your teammates. You know, we don't allow flaming in our games. And if you're too rude in our in-houses, then you're not going to be invited back anymore because we just want to make a space for people who genuinely like the game. That was Lane Newhaz. She's one of the managers of Desolades. When I was nine, my dad bought me a PlayStation. Now, my dad had hated the idea that I'd spend time indoors playing video games. He'd conceded, given me a Game Boy Color for Christmas a couple years earlier, and at least with a PC, he thought I could learn to use AutoCAD or something. But my neighbor already had a Super Nintendo and a Genesis, and I wanted a game console. So I built this argument. It was 2001, so the PS2 was already out. I knew I could afford most of a PlayStation by saving up my allowance, and I told him, if we bought a hacked console, I wouldn't even have to ask for more video games. And I made that argument over and over and over again until in late spring, my dad finally got annoyed enough that he drove me across town to buy a PS1 secondhand. It came with a memory card and 30 games. felt amazing. The issue then was that my sister wanted to play. At first I told her, no, it's mine. I shouldn't have to share. But when my parents got involved, I made a small concession. The PlayStation needed a memory card to save games. She would have to buy her own memory card. So even at a young age, I was gatekeeping, putting up an artificial barrier to keep her from playing video games. My sister was six and her allowance was $2 a week. So I knew that she'd need to spend about a month's earnings to pick up a single memory card. But I also knew that my parents thought that video games were for boys and I could rely on that to keep her from playing. The clearest full game I have memories of is Final Fantasy VII. Uh, that one is of watching and a lot of the PlayStation games you used to get from the PlayStation magazine. So that's my sister. Hello, I'm Soraya Agabali and I'm Armand's sister. And she remembers the memory card thing. Um, being the age that I was, I want to say that I was pretty upset. Now her big console was the PlayStation 2 because our PS1 had actually stopped working and my dad had, in a surprise gift to the two of us, given me a PS2 and my sister a, a Barbie tour bus that I did kind of have my eye on at the time. And even at seven, my sister knew that was an uneven set of gifts. Because, again, I thought your toy was a lot more interesting than mine. I guess her parents just kind of talked me into a way of understanding, like, hey, you got a thing, he got a thing. You have to just understand that. And so I would 
end up just sitting there and watching the video game instead of playing it because in my head it's like, well, that's his toy. I can't touch it, but I can be a part of the experience with him at least. Compare that to Emma Vossen's experience growing up. Card. It's my memory. Card. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like and, this is for me. Yeah. She got her revenge when we started playing games together, or like beside each other more often. She would start to buy games on her own and just would refuse to let me play them. <laughs> I, was, I, I feel like I have like the same relationship with my brother, but the opposite because he always shared with me when he was a kid. Now, like I, you know, am an adult with like a lot of or not a lot of money. Oh my god! But with money, and I buy all my own game consoles. And whenever I'm done with my games console, now I give it to my brother. Um, so uh, he's benefiting from his. Ability to share when we were children. <laughs> Aside from having a brother who didn't totally suck, Emma is a games researcher. So my name's uh, Emma Vossen, and I just finished my PhD at the University of Waterloo, and my research is about gender and gaming. She studies cultural inaccessibility, or essentially, what keeps people from playing video games. It's not always as single-minded as a nine-year-old trying to keep the family game console to himself. There. But it does start that early in life. Remember earlier on when I mentioned those ads? They tell parents who a product is for. Pitfall. That's not for girls. No other man will do. So imagine a situation where Emma didn't have a brother or where my sister didn't have me. Assuming that their parents didn't buy a console for themselves, chances are they wouldn't have access to those tools as a kid. And that's something Emma saw in her research. A lot of people, you know, young girls, for example, who uh, don't have male siblings, people will say, well, if you really liked video games, you would have played them. And it's like when you're six, you're not thinking about like, hmm, I'd really like to play video games. Like you, you might not even know you might have never played a video game. But when you're six and you're male, your parents just buy you a video game console. And that is your entry point to the games industry. If you... If you're female, like, that doesn't happen for you. Your parents aren't just going to buy you a video game console. Studies show, actually, that still to this day, um, you know, even if there's a video game console in the house, uh, girls are always last in line for that console. Like, not just behind their brothers, but behind their fathers as well. So there's an issue of of access there um, to the games themselves. And I think a lot of people just really think... If you really care about games, there's nothing stopping you from playing them. A lot of my interviews that I've done with female gamers, it's a question I always ask them. I always say, do you have a brother? And if they say, oh, I don't have a brother, then I'm very curious because I'm like, okay, well, how'd you get into playing games? Um, And oftentimes it's that their father was a big gamer. It was that their high school boyfriend was a big gamer. There's always a male point of contact that is the reason that they started playing games. And it's not the reason they like games. It's not like they're like, I like games because I wanted to impress my brother or boyfriend. They just didn't think it was for them until they had this sort of the opposite of a gatekeeper. It's like you have a gate opener. You have this person who opens the gate for you. And for me, that was my brother. And, you know, sometimes I really mess with my brain where I'm like, I wouldn't be sitting here today if I had been born with a sister. What the heck would I be doing with my life? I don't know. It's, It's weird to think about. That may not sound like a huge deal, but not playing games at a young age has a lot of domino effects. It means they won't be exposed to the gaming industry or the communities within it. And that, in turn, creates an exclusive identity for people who play games. I guess we call them gamers. There's this really good article by Graham Kirkpatrick called um, How Video Games Became Sexist. And it actually talks about how um, before the 1980s, when we talked about the players of games, it wasn't gendered. There wasn't this idea that by players we meant men. It could mean men or women. It could mean girls or boys. And if you look at video game advertising from the early 80s, you'll see families in that advertising. And then around 1985, 1986... 
you know, things started to change. And in video game magazines specifically, you'll see people starting to use the term gamer. The term gamer before meant like people who played with trains. It was like not a thing. Um, and when you hear people using this term gamer, slowly that term stops meaning someone who plays games and it starts to mean men who play games. And then it starts to mean men who play a certain type of games. And by the time I was born in 1988, that term gamer specifically meant uh, men who play a certain type of game. And in my dissertation, I even talk about how the term gamer was heavily associated with things you wouldn't think of, like uh, pornography and masturbation, uh, retro games and uh, very difficult games. You know, gamer became associated with so much more than just playing a video game. When we talk about like a capital G gamer, like what does that person look like demographically? What, do, what does a, a capital G gamer imagine themselves to be? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because... I hear constantly all the ways that I'm not a gamer, um, despite playing video games my whole life. So, you know, it's it's weird the little things that some people consider make you a gamer and some don't. So, you know, I've seen memes that will say that anyone who plays video games on any type of console whatsoever, not a gamer. A gamer would only play video games on a PC. But then you'll see other people who are like, um, consider like Nintendo gamers as part of gamers, but you're only a gamer if you've played like every game dating back to the NES, you know? So I think, you know, obviously uh, gamer is sort of um, bullcrap, cra- bull I almost swore there. <laughs> um, the idea of gamer is sort of bullshit, but um, it's these little different things that make people think you're a gamer and no one's going to look at me walking down the street and be like, ah, that, there's a gamer. Um, but I have friends who don't play video games that people will look at and just people will just assume they're gamers because, you know, they're white dudes and they wear glasses and they dress a certain way. And it doesn't even matter that they don't play video games because people will just give them the benefit of the doubt that they do. I mean, what we're talking about here is kind of like these, these little elements of cultural cachet that people yeah. can, can carry and pick up. And um, to, to a certain extent, like um, like being a jock, being a jock has a certain cultural cachet. It's like a dude who's like ripped. It's a dude who likes sports. Like there's a lot of like little things mixed in there. But I'm wondering, like, to what extent is that are those cachets tied into masculinity versus just being like, can a woman just dress a certain way? It's like, ah, yes, the gamer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I talk about that a little bit in the third chapter of my dissertation. I sort of discuss this idea that women can enact certain um, cultural scripts or they can say certain things or act a certain way um, in order to be more accepted by the community. And I will be the first to admit that until I was probably like 21, I just... I didn't really see the way that women in games were treated poorly, even though I was treated terribly by my gamer friends, because I just thought, oh, if I just play the right games, if I play just enough hours of WoW, if I, you know, run enough dungeons, if I uh, buy enough clothes that look like this, if I do, if I act a certain way, then they'll accept me. And so I was sort of in this denial that, um, you know, if I could just learn to trash talk right, my gamer guy friends would accept me, but it was never going to happen. I was just, I was hardcore in denial. Trash talking, for instance. Yeah. I remember there was a point, um, this was about, I think, 2000, might have been 2012, 2013, where um, there was a huge incident of like a pseudo reality TV show being filmed. I think the gamer who you're referring to, I think his name is Eris Bactinius. That is, is, the, that, yes. is that right? Yeah. And so he gave an interview where people said, 
um, the interviewer said to him, like, can I have my fighting game community without my sexual harassment? Because people kept saying this female gamer and, you know, they kept saying not just like they kept saying rape that bitch, I think is what they kept saying. And he said, no, like you can't have the fighting game community without sexual harassment. Sexual harassment is part of the fighting game community. And if you take that out, then, you know, it's not the fighting game community anymore. And I think he actually said, but it's just this idea that. The game isn't the game without trash talk, but the hilarious thing that most gamers don't know about the history of video games, probably because they're not old enough, is that trash talk wasn't always a part of video games. And, um, you know, there's actually uh, the book Masters of Doom, if you read it, it actually sort of discusses the birth of trash talk because it talks about how when the guys who... Uh, made doom they would like show up at quake tournaments and they would be like trash talking and gamers would be like offended because at that time at tournaments you didn't say anything you were just silent and the only noise was like clicking keys but that was around that time in the early 90s that suddenly you know swearing at each other and insulting each other became sort of you know quote unquote part of the game um but people kind of talk about it like it was always that way uh, when I really think the trash talk is a thing where it can be like consensual, people can enjoy it. Um, but I think a lot of the times, uh, part of the enjoyment get people get out of trash talk is that it's not consensual. It's that they're humiliating someone who doesn't want to participate in that sort of talk. And it's definitely not okay if it's gendered because then it's not just saying, oh, I'm just messing with you because you're my opponent. It's I'm messing with you because you're a woman. Hey, so we're taking a quick break to talk about our fall fun drive for another round of our successful refugee radio workshops for Syrian refugees. This particular episode was made in partnership with Radio Free Krypton, and we have a group goal of $140. Seems pretty easy, right? If we can pull that off, we'll do a full bonus episode together. In it, we'll recap and analyze the new Spider-Man video game. It'll be a blast, and we really want to do it. So, okay... Are Syrian refugees and a love of Spider-Man not good enough for you? Well, don't worry. We do have some other incentives to help out. Um, What can they win, Dan? If you donate $5, you'll be entered into a draw to win a copy of Monster Hunter World on a platform of your choice. So Xbox One, PS4, PC, you name it. At $10, we'll steal a formatting idea from War Rocket Ajax and rank seven video games of your choice. So send up some names and we'll tell you if they're better than Shadow the Hedgehog or worse than Super Metroid. Plus... You get a raffle ticket for Monster Hunter. Then, at $20, you'll get all of that, and we'll read a message of your choice on air. And a big hug, if, if you want one. Now, this only works if you use the B2P offer code. That's the letter B, like Bubsy, the number 2, as in Chess 2, the sequel, and the letter P, like Pit Fighter. Visit store.cjru.ca to learn more about the program and to make a pledge. CGRU is giving away even more amazing gifts this year, so make sure to check out store.cgru.ca and use offer code B2P. That's the letter B, the number 2, and the letter P. Doom's like a 30-year-old game. Mm. Like, how much does this set up then the groundwork for someone to then go online and do essentially the same thing, but just over Twitter, over Facebook, over and repeatedly and consistently to these to women online like yeah i think that there is a sort of um how do i put this like a normalization in games culture of insults of ridic- of ridicule of competition of nastiness there's just sort of um you know we want people want to be like 
oh, gamers are this beautiful culture and we love each other and we're so sweet and peaceful. And anytime I say anything negative about gamers, people come out of the woodwork to tell me how gamers are the greatest, nicest people on earth. But we do have this history of participating in this sort of like really nasty discourse. And I think hearing that discourse, you know, when you're as young as five or six on Xbox Live preps you for when you're 10 or 11 and you get on Twitter, you see some woman on Twitter says something you don't like about your favorite video game and you threaten her with death. You threaten to rape her. You know, it just seems sort of um, the the natural flow of things. Gaming is so tied with technology, especially yeah. the internet, um, that this that this kind of the the identity kind of formed in its own way. Like the, the, there were, there's always been movie magazines. There's always been music magazines, but you couldn't talk to another music fan over through a magazine necessarily. Yeah. How does the the online space kind of help build this identity? Yeah. So I think the online the online aspect of games culture, let's say, um, as opposed to like the IRL spaces, I think it's really interesting because games culture. We have all these different subsets of it. And, you know, I exist in one subset of games culture with all my feminist friends, as much as people would like to not think that that's part of games culture. But then there are these other parts of game cu- games culture where different not feminist behaviors are normalized. And maybe one of the behaviors that's normalized within that space, for example, is that, you know, it's totally okay to insult people um, using racial slurs or it's totally okay to insult people using homophobic slurs and we've seen recently a lot of streamers come out and say like oh well I said this homophobic slur but I didn't mean it in a homophobic way I just meant that I just meant it in that person was bad or like oh I use this racial slur but I just meant that person was bad and they don't seem to see the irony of like of how stupid they sound it was something that I said in the heat of the moment and it just sort of slipped out. It was not okay. I'm really sorry if I offended, hurt, or disappointed anyone. Yeah, I'm sorry. What can I say? I was super token. It happened actually pretty often where I would play for like 16 or 18 hours back to back, and then I would just get upset about a game, and then I would do some really stupid stuff afterwards. But I think it's just that those behaviors are so normalized in gaming culture that they are not deviant. You know, throwing out a racial slur is not deviant in games culture. There's these spaces where from a young age you can just hear people throwing out homophobic slurs and think, oh, well, they don't mean that like that. So you think it's okay yourself. Women have been, um, you know, sort of pushed out of games and technology spaces in general for a long time. But when we look back at the history of technology, you know, programming, for example, was once a woman's job. You know, um, the first computers that we ever had were programmed by women because programming was considered like menial work that was below any man. Um, And then, you know, when a computer became the most important thing in the world, all of a sudden it was like men who were programming these computers. And um, we just kind of forgot about the women who basically invented programming. Um, And I think that that's just one example of sort of the many ways that women have been there all along, but have been sort of subtly pushed out. And when you hear about, you know, the history of companies like Atari, for example, there was lots of women who were working at Atari, um, but they also had things like meetings and hot tubs. And it's like, if you're a woman who's working in that company and you have to meet with your boss in a bikini, you know, maybe you'll think maybe this job is just not worth it. And I think that that's something that's still happening. And 
um, if anybody's been following what's um, been coming out about what's happening at Riot, you see lots of little examples of the sort of things that make women um, abandon their careers in the games industry. And I think that it's just the same culture that makes women think, you know, they play games online for the first time. And then after a day of getting screamed at for being a woman, they're like, "Mm, I'm not going to play games online anymore. And they just give it up. So, I mean, one of the things that's um, Atari, um, judging by the number of the amount of reports of drugs and just sexual harassment that happened at company, like totally fascinating, but also maybe not the best place to work. (laughs) Um, Riot, what I found interesting about some of the reporting was that like, the things that they get discussed aren't they aren't necessarily like I hate you because you're a woman. Like yeah. no one no, no one ab- says no, yeah, that. Definitely not, yeah. It's more of these things where it's like, as you said, they get interrupted, they get yelled at, their ideas are discredited. And why is it important to also consider like these uh, slights being as important as like someone right out saying whatever sexist thing they want? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So, you know, a lot of what happens with women in games, it goes unnoticed because they're essentially what you were talking about. They're microaggressions, right? It's these really small, really little things that make you feel unwelcome, that make you feel unwanted, that make you feel uncomfortable, that make you feel unsafe. So, you know, that might be um, a higher rate of, of sexual harassment, you know, Um, after, you know, like 25 years of hanging out with gamers, when you're the only girl, you're going to get hit on a lot. Um, and that's a huge problem. Um, you know, just getting interrupted and talked over constantly, that's going to be a huge problem. But I think the biggest thing, um, and the biggest, uh, problematic microaggression that was coming out in a lot of this riot stuff was this idea at the end of the day that, uh, Women can play games and women can be gamers, but women are never going to be like gamer enough to be a rioter. And if you're to be gamer enough, you have to enact this specific identity in this specific way. You know, don't cause too much trouble. Don't be too much of a feminist. Uh, don't poke too many holes in my ideas. You're, you're kind of talking about this. How is how is masculinity even enforced in these spaces? Like mm-hmm. what? What are people doing, whether intentional or not, to to determine how like if you're if you're properly suited or properly masculine enough for this space? Yeah, it's interesting. So there's definitely a sort of a tie between masculinity and how good you physically good you are at games. But there is this longstanding belief that women are like biologically inferior obviously and that that biological inferiority means that we physically cannot play games as well as men um when in reality the reason there aren't more women in esports there aren't more women pro gamers is because we're treated like garbage um but still nonetheless a lot of people believe that like women mentally or physically or whatever um can't play games as well as men and therefore masculinity is inherently tied to being agile enough, to being smart enough, um, to being uh, quick and skilled and devoted enough. You know, even if you're a man, by being tied to femininity in any way, that can still affect you negatively. I mean, even just things like if you play the wrong game, someone could say like, oh, you play Animal Crossing? Like, it's this idea that playing, doing anything that's feminine takes away from not just your masculinity, but also your gamer identity because they're intrinsically linked. Going back to, to kind of um, one of the early points in your project, um, tell me a bit about the, the, the Game Institute, Janes. What is that group and how did they get started? Yeah. So when I started my PhD at Waterloo, I was one of, you know, three women who were even sort of interested in studying games. There was 
a lot of men there who are either writing their dissertation about games or making games or that sort of thing and and very very few women um and i was friends with the other few women who there were there and we would have these meetings and anytime you try to bring up gender there'd be a lot of like oh like not this again um and so we just had this idea we're like okay what if we made sort of our own space where we got together as the women affiliated with the games institute and we just played games and talked about things um that we were interested in and we thought that was a good way to um, talk about issues of gender, uh, feel more comfortable playing games, but also not necessarily step on the toes of the guys who we worked with and the things that they wanted to talk about. G.I. Jane's was not the success that you hoped for. Yeah. What were the limitations with the project as you saw it? Yeah, so many. Um, that's a really good question. So first of all, um, people were really opposed to it. Like men and women alike, I think at the time, um, you know, this was before Gamergate. This was before a certain a sort of acceptance that uh, gender and games was something we had to think about. A lot of people were like, no, you, you can't hold women's only gaming tournaments. You can't hold women's only talks. You can't hold women's only uh, game nights. And it just it just concerned people in a way that I still don't quite understand. So we actually instead um, held gaming nights that were um, feminist gaming nights focused on women but open to men and we did that a total of twice before we stopped doing it entirely because just it was just because men couldn't behave themselves to be honest like it was just a constant like men um, explaining women how to play a game they already knew condescendingly calling them honey once I heard a man telling like this is incredibly transphobic story and had to like give him a piece of my mind and you know, there's just it was just constant behaviors that were happening that we just couldn't police. So eventually we had we started having women's only nights and it was just so much easier because you didn't feel like you had to be in 100 places at once. Because even when we started the nights off being like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't say this, don't say this. Men would still do and say all those things. And um, it was just kind of it was exhausting, to be honest. I mean, how do you deal with that mentally? Like the fact that like. Because in some ways, I feel like gaming, unlike sports, you there's you can make. I, th- I think there's there's an argument to be made that maybe men and women should be able to play together. But there's like there's a long history there of like yeah, the of physicality yeah. of it. But I don't think you can make a, a significant argument for like someone can handle like women, men or women yeah, or exactly. whoever can handle a controller better to to go to women's only spaces. Does that feel like a retreat? Like how do you sort that in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic question. I think a lot of people see something like a women's only game night or um, you know, a girls only programming workshop, for example, and they think this is segregation. Like this is bad. But what they don't understand is that they don't understand the psychological and cultural complications of it all. So, um I think, for example, um, women's only esports tournaments are actually a good thing because it's a space, and not for physical limitations, not for mental limitations, but because of cultural limitations. And I think that, um, especially as young girls, you know, research has shown, for example, that young girls at um, uh, in at gameplay events or workshops will act differently if men. Uh, if other if boys are in the room and they're not doing it on purpose they're not thinking oh there's a boy here so I'm going to act this way it's just that they are less willing to take risks they're less willing to speak up um, they're just going to completely change their behavior 
um, because they're in a gender mixed space. And I wish it wasn't like that. But until we completely detangle technology from masculinity, I think that we do have to um, have these separate events. And I, I don't think it's a retreat. I don't think it's a segregation. I actually think it's a step forward. I don't think we can move forward until we um, are comfortable with um, spaces uh, for marginalized people in games, be them women or or genderqueer people or people of color or um, any other space that uh, people need to feel comfortable. I want to thank you so much for your time. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Emma Vossen is currently a postdoctoral fellow at York University in Toronto. It won't be easy to fix gaming if such a thing is possible. Not everyone needs to play video games or even every kind of game, but everyone deserves a fair chance to play. Next time on Built to Play, we're talking to Kishana Gray exactly on that topic. What does it mean to have a fair chance to play in an industry that seems set up for failure? Just for a limited time, buy the Super NES Super Set and get five complete Mario games standard. No other man will do. From CGRU, this has been Built to Play. I'm Aminik Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. You can follow us on Twitter at Built to Play or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. Now remember, this is the first half of our crisis crossover on Toxic Nerds. Later, you'll hear from the crew at Radio Free Krypton on racism and sexism in the comic book industry. If you like today's show, send us an email at builtplayshow at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. You can follow me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-A-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. Thank you so much for listening. Now, before you head out, just a quick reminder, CGRU is hosting a fund drive going on right now to fund $3,300 for another round of our successful Refugee Radio workshops. All you need to do to support is visit store.cgru.ca and use the offer code B, like Burger Time, 2, as in Burger Time 2, and the letter P, as in Peter Pepper, the protagonist of Burger Time. $5 $5 to get you a copy of Monster Hunter World. And $10 to get us ranking your favorite Garfield games live on air. So again, visit store.cgru.ca and use the offer code B2P. Yes, we know how it sounds. Special thanks to CGRU for giving us another year on the air.